This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. No organization as large and complex as the U.S. Department of Defense, DOD, has ever been audited. It has an annual budget of roughly $600 billion a year, accounting for half of all federal discretionary spending. It holds assets that are at an estimate value of $2 trillion, an amount roughly equal to the combined value of Apple, AT&T, ExxonMobil, GE, Walmart, Verizon, and Microsoft. These simple statistics, however, do not begin to convey the complexity of the department's operations. Each year, the department processes roughly 12 million commercial invoices and 200 million pay transactions for military and civilian employees. Why does the DOD lack an audited financial statement? What has DOD done to get to auditability? What challenges has DOD faced in its pursuit of an audited financial statement? And what can DOD do better? Today, we'll explore these questions and so much more with Peter K. Levine of the Institute for Defense Analysis and author of an IDA report on auditing the Pentagon. Peter, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. So before we get into specifics, Peter, what is an audited financial statement? Why is it important and how challenging is it to prepare such a statement in any sector? So you have to start with what a financial statement is. A financial statement is basically a balance sheet for an enterprise. It shows the value of the assets and liabilities in light of, 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 of revenues and, and, and expenditures. Um, if it's an audited financial sta- uh, statement, what it means is if you have a clean audit, it means you've been reviewed, independently reviewed and your auditors have determined that there are no significant deficiencies in your financial statement. Um, in terms of how hard it is, a small entity can do it the way you and I do a, our tax returns. They can throw all the receipts in a, in, a, in a shoebox during the course of a year. They can take them out at the end of the year. They can add them all up, and they can, they can produce a, fight, a statement, and it's likely to be auditable. Um, the larger the entity gets, obviously, the more complicated it gets. Mm-hmm. You know, would you give us a, uh, an overview of the legislative history in the federal government at uh, financial reform? I'm, I'm thinking the CFO Act of 1990, the Government Management Reform Act of 94. What prompted these efforts? What was the impetus of mandating the preparation of an audited financial so I think you could, you, could, you could probably safely say that the government has never had really good books. Mm-hmm. Um, it, certainly, it was a problem in the Civil War. 
Um, and it became a major problem at the beginning of the 20th century when government started to really grow in size. And we had uh, GAO, originally it was called the, the, the uh, General Accounting Office, if I remember correctly. Its purpose was originally to audit all those receipts. And they had a whole bunch of auditors and they audited every expenditure and they looked at every expenditure. We just outgrew that. It became impossible. Um, and so uh, starting with, with, the, uh, with the New Deal and, and World War II, we saw, this, we saw the size of government just growing so much that, that we needed new systems and new processes. And we struggled with it for years. And finally, in, in, in the mid-'80s, the Comptroller General, uh, Chuck Bowser was at the time, decided that the solution to our problems was we needed an audited financial statement, that that was the discipline that got private sector entities to put their books in order, that the government needed that same discipline. Right. Maybe you could elaborate on the utility of a financial statement? Well, a financial statement in the private sector um, serves a couple of purposes. You want to be able to value your assets because that shows you shows the value of your company. You, you know, whether you have net debts, you have net liabilities, you want to be able to show your income stream because that, that shows investor potential investors um, what they're getting for their money. So basically, an, a financial statement is something that you do for outside entities to show okay. to show potential investors how much you're worth and how, you, how well your business is doing. So the question is, when you bring that in, to government, what is the value of that? So, Peter, would you give us a sense of the scale of operation related to DOD's financial function and transactions that they make annually? Well, DOD is, is, is the largest entity the largest economic unit in the world. I mean, unless you're talking about an entire an entire economy, so DOD is sometimes compared to an economy. It has its own it has its own hospitals, it has its own schools, it has its own supply system, it has its own communication system. It pays itself, and it has all these transactions that go back and forth within the Department of Defense. So it's not just like you can take separate business units and add them up. They're all doing business with each other and sending sending business to each other, providing services with or without compensation to each other. So in terms of financial statement, trying to track all of that is just a nightmare. The the size, it's got to be estimated about $2 trillion in assets, which makes it as large as Apple and Microsoft and another half dozen of the largest businesses in the United States added together. But the size alone doesn't convey the complexity. Peter, you note that in the private sector, accrual-based accounting is also used to compare the cost of producing goods to the price of sale. And it gives you the ability to assess the profitability of activities and lines of businesses. What is the difference between managerial accounting versus financial accounting? And which accounting is typically used to support management decisions? So financial accounting is, is the accounting for is, – is basically centers around that financial statement to make sure that the financial statement is accurate so that the, the picture you're presenting to investors is accurate. It's a vitally important function in, in, in the private sector. If you're lying about what's on your balance sheet, then you're misrepresenting yourself to, to investors. Um, but it's basically backward-looking because it looks at the value of assets today, the transactions that have already taken place. Managerial accounting is forward-looking. What you're trying to do is understand the ongoing costs of how much certain activities are costing you, how much revenue they're bringing in, so that you can make decisions about the future, how much to invest, how to, how to structure your budget, um, so that you can run your business prospectively. The pro- and, and managerial accounting would seem to be the one, if you're looking at it from the abstract, you said that's the one that has relevance to the government because what do we care about a balance sheet? The problem is that the CFO Act, which, is, which, which was enacted in response to the Comptroller General's concern, is focused essentially on 
financial accounting. So what we've focused on for the last 30 years in the government is financial statements, and we have not focused on that managerial accounting, which would probably be more useful for us. How important is that? Is there a movement towards that, to be honest? Well, there hasn't been a movement okay. toward that. I mean, I think that uh, managerial accounting is not a comprehensive single statement kind of thing. Sure. So there are parts of the Department of Defense and there are parts of government sure. that will use managerial accounting techniques for specific purposes, but we've never tried to systematically move into the manager- man- managerial accounting area. What has DOD done to get to auditability? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Jane Wiseman, Data-Driven Government, the role of chief data officers. How can we realize the promise of data-driven government? What do chief data officers, CDOs, actually do? And how can they help government agencies use data to inform decision-making? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Data-Driven Government, the Role of Chief Data Officers. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Mondays at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Peter K. Levine of the Institute for Defense Analysis and author of a recent IDA report on auditing the Pentagon. So, Peter, the department has twice tried to solve the audit problem with grand design, as you refer to it in your report, approaches. Would you tell us more about the corporate information management program of the 1990s? What were the basic principles underlying it? So that's that's abbreviated as the SIM program is generally called. Um, But before I get to that, let me just say, um, put it in a framework. You said we've twice tried that and failed. We've also twice tried and failed on something that I call auditing for for auditability. So basically every idea that we've that we've got for how you would get to auditability we've tried in the past and that's one of the purposes of the paper i've written is to lay out this history so the people going forward will be able to see hey we've already tried this this don't think that you're coming up with something new be aware of the pitfalls for this idea so the 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 sim program was an effort to basically design a new set of business systems and processes for the for the department from the top down the department decided that its existing processes were so messed up that the best thing that it could do would to be, to be to figure out from a clean sheet of paper, what is the information we do need? Now let us structure systems and processes around that. That, that was the, the heart of what the SIM idea was. Great. Um, what were some of the challenges in pursuing SIM, and why did it not succeed? Well, it took just a few months before the people who had been tasked to do this, they, they brought together some working groups in, in different substantive areas, said, this is too hard. We don't have the capacity to do this. We don't know all the information that DOD would need. Um, It's too complex of an entity. At the same time that that message was being communicated, a separate message was being communicated from the military services who said, you've taken away all of our money for system upgrades because you said we were going to get this SIM system, this, this SIM funded, and we don't see any results. 
if you're going to take our money, you have to give us results. So DOD looked at that and said, okay, well, we're going to focus then instead on interim business systems, okay. which will be upgraded versions of what you have now. We'll still keep out there the, the ultimate pie in the sky that we'll get to SIM eventually, but we're going to focus on this transitional process. Um, and so eventually the, the, the ultimate SIM goal faded entirely, and they focused entirely on the interim business systems. And some of those worked and some of them didn't. But, but the, the big goal of let's take the grand leap and, and design something from scratch um, proved just to be too much for the department to do. Yeah. Um how did the department pivot to address some of the issues impacting SIM's effectiveness, or do yeah. you think you could yeah, elaborate? Yeah, no, so, so I think that was the pivot. And okay. what, they, what they said was, we're going to look where, in areas where we have maybe five or six business systems or 10 or 12 business systems doing similar kind okay. of functions, and we're going to pick the best of breed for each one. Okay. And that's how we're going to – that's we're going to call them down and get an improvement. So we don't have to invent something new. If we can just pick the best in breed, that will be an interim step forward. Is that kind of like leading to the fact that there were some successes or was that some of accomplishments with SIM? That, that, that helped. It okay. proved, proved to be harder than they thought because it turns out that if you had 12 different business systems doing similar functions, they weren't doing the identical function. And somebody had to give up what they were doing now and give up some, some of what they were doing now. And it turned out they weren't really willing to do that. Oh, okay. So um, even in the interim business system area, they had they hit major obstacles. Um, and and um, this is where you get to the, the creation of DFAS and, okay. and, and the, which is the Defense Finance and Accounting Service and DBOF, which is the Defense Business Operations Fund, which were two vehicles that the department tried to use to, to bridge this gap and get and field interim, interim business systems. And what they found was DFAS, they had some success, which dealt with the core financial, finance and accounting systems. And they had some success because with the creation of DFAS, they transferred all the systems and people to a single entity. So then that entity owned the business systems and processes and was able to able to do some consolidation. There are disputes about how successful it was, but they significantly reduced the number of systems. They significantly reduced the number of people. They take credit for billions of dollars of savings over the years. DBOF, the problem was that it brought together the bookkeeping Okay. But it didn't bring together the ownership of the systems and processes. So each of the services and each of the components was still out there trying to run its own logistics system, trying to run its own personnel system, trying to run its own medical system. And DBOF said, we're going to keep the books for you. Well, it, it was a recipe for disaster because they were keeping the books, but they were trying to keep books on dozens of disparate processes that didn't fit together any better than they did before, and the people who still own those systems and processes were not willing to give them up and, and, and move to these, these improved systems or best in breed or anything like that. So they sort of hit a stone wall there. As a follow-up, would you outline the challenges and successes that derive from both? But more importantly, to what extent has the creation of DFAS uh, been a signal success for DOD management reform, and are there this is really where I wanted to go because I thought your report did a great job of this. Illustrating some lessons learned about this experience. So I think that it shows a, a couple of things. One is that if you want to make progress, you have to take manageable bite-sized chunks. If you try to do everything, you're going to get nothing done. The other is that, that if you want to make progress in these business areas, you have to have buy-in from the people who are engaged in, in, in the process. That if you try to elevate it up to, to the top level and, and, and you're too many layers removed from the people who actually own the process and are responsible for producing the results, you're going to get this user resistance and it's going to be very difficult to overcome. Um, so um, what we've learned from the DFAS and DBOF experience, but also over the years that have come, this, come, come since then, is um, 
choose a problem that is that is tailored so that you so that something you can solve. Choose a level of ownership of that where where it's somebody who actually owns the process and and can can and and will be res- responsible for the results so that they you can get the buy-in and make sure that you can con- continue to produce. John Hamry, who was the oh, controller yes. of the Department of Defense in in the, in the 1990s before he became deputy secretary, used to say that trying to get to fix these problems was like trying to um, to uh, replace the tires on a car while still driving at 60 miles an hour on the highway because you've got to keep operating all the systems while you're trying to change them out. I sort of think maybe more like trying to trying to rebuild the engine sure. um, while driving at 60 miles an hour. But the point is that that's why you need the buy-in is because people who are running those systems are still going to feel the responsibility to produce results. We can't stop buying things. We can't stop supplying the force in the field because because we're substituting out um, business systems this 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 year. I mean, you just can't stop that. So you have to keep running it. Um, and there are ways that you work that. It's change management is a huge problem. Um, but biting bite-sized chunks and ownership of the problem, I think, are keys to solving it. So with all of these efforts happening in the department level, you kind of hinted during some of your responses that, uh, you know, the experiences of the armed services, the services. What were their experiences during this particular first grand scheme and little audit to auditability? Well, it's interesting. During this period in the 1990s, the services were actually being pushed around by GAO and the Congress, I think, as much as anything. Um, This is when the idea of an auditable financial statement was fairly new, and Congress didn't understand why DOD wasn't making more progress, why they weren't getting there. Um, So we were actually doing audits. Of, of, of individual services, and they were showing disastrous results. I mean, okay. billions of dollars of discrepancies, um, things that were missing, things that we couldn't track down, things where we just didn't have paperwork, things where it looked like people just plugged in a number because they didn't have any idea what the real number was. Um, and so you had a series of hearings on those, th- those kinds of things, um, which really showed the services to bad light. So they threw manpower at addressing problems um, like tracking down receipts and tracking down auto trails and matching up matching up paper and really difficult problems. Just imagine a military service with a hundred billion dollar uh, budget and a shoebox, and they're hiring people to, to to go through those shoeboxes. It was not the best expenditure of funds at a time when they it would have been probably better for them to focus as as they have more recently on fixing the systems and processes rather than trying to track down the paper. Was that at the time of the peace dividend, so to speak, or was that slightly before? Uh, It was the peace dividend, but what you have to understand about the peace dividend was the peace dividend was we took money away from the department because we didn't didn't need to spend as much on defense anymore. And and some of that obviously was a legitimate uh, dividend, but some of it also was we took money away from from overhead functions in the department, so that made some of these problems even harder. What challenges have DOD faced in its pursuit of an audited financial statement? We'll explore this question. It's much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour. A conversation with authors returns. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Lieutenant General Charles Luckey, Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command, 
leads a community-based force of more than 200,000 soldiers and civilians with a footprint that includes 50 states, five territories, and more than 30 countries. The Army Reserve is a critical force provider of trained and ready units and soldiers, delivering full-spectrum capabilities essential for the Army to fight and win wars and respond to homeland emergencies on behalf of the American people. Lieutenant General Lucky discusses the mission of the U.S. Army Reserve, the essential components of force readiness, and the Army Reserve's support of civilian authorities, and so much more. In 1908, uh, the Army Reserve started primarily as a way to expand the medical capability and capacity of the Army in time of war. And, and the theory is very simple. Um, it's essentially a business model. But the theory was we don't need to have full-time cardiothoracic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and, and emergency room technicians all the time at the full capacity that we would need in combat to support land, land uh, warfare operations. And so the, the notion was let's go find places in America where by and large the technical capabilities, the talent that we would need, we will need in the event of a war is essentially being trained and that readiness is being sustained in, in everyday you know, America. So we're talking about the Mass General Hospital in Boston or any number of Mayo Clinic. So we go out and we find capability that's already out there, very high state of technical capability and readiness, and then we bring it into the Army as needed, when needed, through the Army Reserve, episodically, for limited periods of time, at a massive cost savings to the taxpayer. So that's that was the initial going-in idea behind developing this capability for the Army. Being ready and able to support the warfighting efforts of the U.S. comes with its own challenges. General Lucky elaborates. Without a doubt, the, the biggest challenge that I have as a leader of this team is to drive a change in the culture of one of the three components of the Army and, and ensuring that the, that the culture of that component matches and is going to support the development of certain capabilities to deal with the emerging threats in the 21st century. We are now in an environment where there are competitors, potential competitors, um, on on a global scale that have the ability to challenge our military capabilities, our military power, what we have referred to as overmatch, what we have essentially relied on to be able to operate to some degree of impunity across in certain domains, um, who now have the ability to challenge us in each and every one of those domains. Very simply, driving the requisite cultural change in an organization is probably the biggest challenge I face. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation 
to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center Special Report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Peter K. Levine of the Institute for Defense Analysis and author of a recent IDA report on auditing the Pentagon. Uh, you know, uh, I'd like to transition to the what, we, what you called in your paper the second grand design approach to solving the audit problem, which was the Business Enterprise Architecture Initiative. Would you tell us more about the purpose and objective of this initiative? So I remember when, when I was on Capitol Hill at the time, and um, we wanted the department to develop a plan for what it was going to do so that they could take logical steps of tell us how you're going to get there. Don't, don't just do this random action where you're trying to do everything at the same time. Tell us how what you're doing is improving the situation and leading toward auditability. Um, GAO developed the idea of a business enterprise architecture as a way to map out where the department was, where it needed to be, and then develop a transition plan that, 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 mapped, that, that took you from one to the other. Um, so it was a logical, a logical planning me- mechanism. And so we, we actually codified into statute the idea that they were going to have the business enterprise architecture and the transition plan. What were some of the limitations related to this strategy? And does the BEA and the SIM share similar issues? So the the um, BEA was a little bit more logical than the SIM in that it recognized that you have where you have an as is. You have to sure. you, you're starting from someplace. You can't just start with with the endpoints. You have to recognize where you are today. So it was more realistic in that. But it suffered the same kind of problem as SIM in that it ter- proved to be just too complex for the department. So DoD started out just trying to map its what it called its as is architecture. What do we have now? And so we, they spent $100 million, $200 million. They had contractors running around and trying to figure this out. They came in and they said, well, we think we have 600 business systems, business and financial systems. Then they came in and said, well, we think it's 1,200. Then they came in and said, well, it looks like it's 2,400. That's what we count now, but we really think that when we really get to the bottom, it'll probably be at least twice that. This is taking place over a period of a couple of years, and they're still counting the existing systems. Meanwhile, GAO has said, well, that's just a, a, you're doing that on the basis of a data request. You're asking people what systems they have. That'll get you a little bit of information. But what you really need to know is what data is included in the systems, how is it used, who is it using it, and what are the connections between the different systems. So you just barely scratch the surface. Even if you could get that count of the systems, which is taking you years to develop and you're not getting there, you just barely scratch the system. It was practically as if you would need to do the successful audit in order to develop your as-is architecture. So it was just too complicated to, to do that. You couldn't map all the data in the department without doing just stopping the department and running through just a, spending spending a year on a complete review. So it wasn't it, it wasn't any more practical than sim at the end of the day. Yeah, but did it evolve during the life cycle? Like, did you see a change? Did well, it pivot at all? Some very smart people at DoD figured out that what they could do would be to develop what they called a federated business enterprise architecture. Okay. And that makes sense in terms of the department structure, structure. that the department is not structured as a centralized, centrally run organization. It has military services. It has components. So the idea of the Federated Business Enterprise Architecture was DOD, the Office of Secretary of Defense, would just develop a few top-level criteria. Then the services would build out the detail and say how they were going to meet those criteria and develop a system that fit into that. Um, 
It was a very rational idea. Um, in practice, what it meant was that the only thing that was ever really developed was the top level because even the services were too complicated. And really, the idea um, just sort of fizzled after that. It, there, was, there, was, there was bowing down to the idea of a business enterprise architecture, but we really still don't have one. And we don't have one for good reason. It's just too complicated. To, it comes back to this idea of trying to do everything at once. Uh, what you need to do is to pick out the parts that are managed, pick out a, a size of a problem that's manageable and work that problem. And I think that we have learned from the business enterprise architecture, though, in that when we pick, take on a problem, so if the Army is taking on its core financial system or the Defense Logistics Agency is taking on its, its logistics tracking systems, they have recognized that they need to do this mapping process and figure out what they've got now, where they want to get, and do the arrows in between. So on a more micro scale, we do business enterprise architectures. We just can't do the comprehensive business enterprise architecture that GAO uh, envisioned at the start Given of this. The size, it's just too big and too yeah, complex. Yeah. You know, um, I love in your report what you do is you – lay out the historical evolution of all of these efforts, but you, you're very even-handed about the pros and the cons and, and the realities that were associated with each one of these efforts. And I'd like to switch gears to something, I guess it was serendipitous because at the time in the private sector it became a big deal or maybe it had just, you know, jumped the shark in the private sector, but the Enterprise Research Planning uh, Initiative. Well, perhaps you could elaborate on the strategic deficiencies of the DOD approach, which were frequently not encountered in the private sector. So enterprise resource planning, they're called ERP programs, were developed in the private sector in the 1990s. They were basically supposed to be off-the-shelf systems that would comprehensively link together the business processes of, of an organization. And the, the idea was instead of having separate custom-built systems, one system for your logistics, one system for your personnel, one system for your finance, and, and then linking them together, you'd have a single system that would link all those things together. That way you wouldn't have to be transferring data back and forth and have the loss of accuracy you have when you have different data developed in different systems with different definitions. So it was it was that, that was the concept behind it. The problem even in the private sector was if you're going to develop one single off-the-shelf system and, and deploy it, then people who had all these different business processes they were already using were going to have to change their business processes to match the system. And there was a huge change management problem even in the private sector where there were companies that sort of rejected it and couldn't, couldn't implement it. Nonetheless, there were many companies that successfully implemented ERPs in the 1990s. And that was what DOD was looking at. And they said, well, that's what we need. We can't afford to be custom developing these, DOD, these unique systems across the Department of Defense if there's a solution that's working in the private sector, especially if it's off the shelf and it's already been developed, then we need to buy that rather than developing our own. So, so they moved very strongly, the department moved very strongly into ERPs in the early 2000s. The biggest problem, the fundamental problem, is the scope of DOD, which is so much bigger than, 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 than the private sector. Orders of magnitude larger, which means that the change management problem is going to be orders of magnitude larger. The interconnectivity and, and, and even how you'd bring in a new system would be that much harder. But on top of that, DOD uh, created a new problem because they basically – brought in an ERP and used it for a stovepipe function. So the whole concept behind an ERP was you're going to bring these, these different systems and processes together and have them in a single system so it will it'll be linked, you'll have good data. Well, DOD would, would 
put in one ERP for your logistics, one ERP for your financials, another ERP for this, another ERP for that, and you had multiple ERPs, which means you're basically undermining one of the major purposes of having an enter- enterprise resource program in the first place. The idea of enterprise resource program, the word enterprise is right there in the name. <laughs> so, That's interesting. So they made it even more complex. Having said that, um, we have successfully fielded some ERPs in the Department of Defense. The Defense Logistics Agency has a very good one, and the Army has a couple of good ones. Um, and they, they, they work well. They provide better, better data. Um, they're easier to upgrade than, than a custom-built system. Um, so there is experience with doing this right and getting good results. But, but, we made the pro- but the problem is much harder in the Department of Defense, and we made it even harder by the way we did it. What happened to... Is there is there you you mentioned DLA you mentioned Army and uh, does the does the department proper have any ERP? There is no there is no overarching DOD ERP and there probably couldn't be because I mean because again it's we're getting, just, back, it's, to it's, getting back to the size and too, complexity too big and, of a size yeah. and and the places where they've succeeded are the places where you've had people at at a hands on level who've taken ownership you of it. Keep and on said, bringing that through the ownership. This is this is yep. this is our. Our system, it's doing our business processes, and we want we it to work, it and we know it, and we know how it works. So the Army really did that on a hands-on basis, and DLA really did that on a hands-on basis, and, and, and the difference showed. Now, Trent, just as a follow-up with that, because you've suggested in your, in your lessons learned uh, throughout and in your recommendations that you know, take that problem, by, take a bite of that problem, have the person who owns it and knows it solid. How does that? How do you do that with stakeholders like the like the Congress and like GAO? Uh, Congress has been willing to give the department a fair amount of license. Okay. I mean, um, and the department has been taking recommendations from GAO for, for on this for thirty years now. So they're they're trying they're trying hard to do the right thing. Um, I, I, I don't think that that has been that that Congress or GAO are the problem on that. The problem that you have is. In order to field an ERP or basically any any really logical new business system, you have to change the business processes. If you if you don't change your business processes, you're just automating some obsolete process that didn't make sense in the first place. Um, you might have somewhat more modern IT, but you still got the same same problems. You've just automated them all. Um, so, in order to change the business processes, you have to be you have to be in constant touch with the users. You have to understand what the requirements are, why they do the things they do, why they do them the way they do, and how you can change them. And that's something which you just can't do from a from a thirty five thousand foot level. You have to be down there in the trenches working that. That's and so those those entities of the department that have been willing to get in the trenches have had a lot more success. And the example I would give is we have a couple places where the Army and the Air Force have tried to, to implement what seemed to be on the surface virtually identical programs for the same purpose. Uh, there's, there's, for example, IPS Army and IPS Air Force. IPS stands for Integrated Pay and Personnel System. It's a great idea. Instead of having one system that, that, that tells your personnel what category they're in and another system that pays them, you have a single integrated system so that depending on the category you're in, you automatically cut the right paycheck. So both of them were trying to develop integrated pay and personnel systems. The Army got down in the trenches and said, we're going to work our business processes. We're going to understand our users. We're going to figure this thing out. The Air Force said, we're going to buy this off-the-shelf system, and we're going to tend it to our IT, IT people to field it. That's not getting down in the trenches. The Army 
struggled, worked really hard, and got something fielded, the Air Force canceled the whole thing and had to start over again. So yeah. um, it's, it's the difference. It's not, these are not easy things, things to, to do. do. Not at all. And you point that out eloquently in your report. And you're getting back to the history, um, which I think is really important because you, you say in, in the report that it, it, you need to learn from the past and, or else this is not going to work. And what I wanted to go to is just— Let me, let me just oh. say, if you've been trying to achieve an objective for 30 years and it looks like it's still way off in the distant future, then either the objective is wrong or you've been going about it wrong. And yeah. so you, you definitely need to look at that history and try to figure that out. Keeping with the history, I'd like to get to the evolution. We went from uh, ERP. Then, then they decided— to create the Business Transformation Agency, BTA. What was the purpose of doing that? How did it help the department in its efforts to get to an audible? Uh, so I think the original idea was we see that some people are, are coming to grips with this and some people aren't doing a good job. What we need to do is create a center of excellence that so, that we can, so that we can have expertise on this and, and do it right across the, across the enterprise. Again, a rational idea. The problem was that, again, you create this at the, at the OSD level, at the DOD level, it's, so it's not actually owning those systems. And they discovered the same thing that we've discovered time and time again in the Department of Defense, which is if you don't own the systems and you don't own the processes, the people who do own them and, and are, are not likely to pay a lot of attention to you. So what BTA found after a couple of years was that they had almost no influence at all on the services. The services had already invested, were already in the process of investing their billions of dollars on their ERPs, and they weren't going to listen to somebody from DOD who was going to come in and tell them how they should be doing it. So BTA was left handling a, a handful, a small handful of defense-wide programs, some of which succeeded, some of which failed, um, but they 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 ended up with a much smaller responsibility than they were originally envisioned to have. Has it dissolved? In, in it dissolved why? a few years later. Uh, I think it had more to do with headquarters reductions than anything else. Oh, really? Uh, you so, know, we were at a time when the defense budget was coming back down and looking around and saying, well, we've got this big defense agency and it has this small responsibility. Do we really need a defense agency to do this? And the answer was probably not. There's overhead involved in having a, an entire defense agency. We can have – and some of their stuff was assigned to DLA. Some was assigned to other people. Some was brought into the office of the uh, then deputy chief management officer. But we can have other people do that and reduce the bureaucracy because the responsibilities it has are not big enough to justify having a defense agency. You know, before we move from the history, which you do a great job of, of explaining, I'd like to, to to get a hint of the political dynamics. And what I'm, where I'm going is you mentioned two grand design approaches. And, and I think if I'm right, I may be wrong, but they, they didn't – they were agnostic as to party or administration. This has never been a partisan issue yeah. and it's never been something, you know – uh, it's never been something which is unique to an administration. I, I, I yeah. as as I was at the end of the the end of the last administration, we're getting to leave. I was, I, I did did make the comment to some of my colleagues. Um, if the next administration needs to change course and wants to blame us for for everything that's wrong, that's fine as long as they get the course right. Um, but there hasn't been a whole lot of that. Um, we've had good people in both administrations working really hard on this issue. David Norquist, who's the comptroller right now, um, couldn't ask for anybody better for the, from the point of view of wanting to try to get to defense audit. He brought the uh, – he worked at the uh, Homeland Security, yep. uh, Department of Homeland Security. He got them auditable. Um, so you'd think there would be nobody better you'd want to bring in and he's got them on a course to do a full audit this year. Um, what he's going to discover, I think, is 
um, that the full audit will reveal that we have a whole lot of problems that we really knew we had all along and that we're not whole lot closer to auditability than we were before. But he's a good person. He understands this issue. He's going to learn a lot from that audit, and he, hopefully he'll be able to plan a course forward that will make sense for the department. You know, uh, we're, what I was going to ask you is, with all the things that are, with all of these setbacks, the lack of success around a lot of this, these, historical issues, these historical efforts, um, how have and in what way have the systems, the business systems, um, been improved or impacted? Uh, maybe as a, a derivative, uh, but how have they been sure. impacted so, positively? So I, I used to say that, that, that the auditability goal served one important purpose, which was to focus the department's attention on financial management and the, and, and the, the importance of getting good data. And it has done that for 30 years. The problem is if you set the wrong goal, you might emphasize the wrong priorities within that. So if we're spending time as we have at times during these years, tracking down receipts, as I said, during the 1990s, or trying to value assets as we spent a lot of time in the 2000s, that's not something that really helps you manage the Department of Defense. So you have a lot of wasted effort in there along with productive effort. But I don't want to underplay the productive effort because there's some things that we've done that are, that, that are remarkable advances. I mentioned the fact that we have some really good systems, the DLA systems, the Army systems. I just keep coming back to because I think they're among the best in the breed that we have. I mean, the Army Corps of Engineers is auditable. The Marine Corps thinks that they're close to being auditable. Uh, they've thought that for a while. But beyond that, we have, for example, um, places where we've reduced the number of business systems by a factor of 10 so that wow. we, 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 we've eliminated uh, redundancies and overlaps. Um, we have electronic data interchange almost universally now. So we used to, at the start of this effort in the 1990s, we were entering data into dozens of different systems. So every time it moved from one system to another, you're hand, hand plugging it into the new system. The obvious potential for error is incredible. We've got now interfaces between our systems so that we tend to almost universally, I think, transmit data electronically and not by re recoding it, which, which, which brings about so many errors. Um, we have developed, uh, we haven't talked about the standard financial information system called SFIS. Um, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a common language of how we account for, for, for things in the Department of Defense. Absolutely critical if you're ever going to get anywhere near auditability uh, because one of the problems you have is you have all, all these different systems tracking different things with different definitions and different time periods. Then, you, then even, if they're, even if the data in each of the systems is 100% accurate, which it isn't, but say it's 99% accurate, when you match the systems up to each other, you're going to find mismatches all over the place. And that's a lot of what our auditability problem is. So key to fixing that is common data, co common data definitions. Um, SFITs at least puts us on the road to that. It's never been comprehensively implemented. It keeps evolving, um, so it hasn't answered the problem, but just the fact of its existence is a step in the right direction. How can DOD do better? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org.
Jane Wiseman, Data-Driven Government, the role of chief data officers. How can we realize the promise of data-driven government? What do chief data officers, CDOs, actually do? And how can they help government agencies use data to inform decision-making? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Data-Driven Government, the Role of Chief Data Officers. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Mondays at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Peter K. Levine of the Institute for Defense Analysis and author of a recent IDA report on auditing the Pentagon. So, Peter, uh, the DOD controller has made the case that financial audits can be used to identify shortcomings in, in the department's business systems and processes, and then it can be prioritized for action. Uh, those audits identified hundreds of material deficiencies in DOD systems and processes that have not yet been addressed. Would you identify some of those? So, yeah. First, I don't want to downplay. I think that that uh, David Norquist is, wants to do this comprehensive audit. We always learn something from an audit. So I don't want to say you don't learn anything from an audit. But we, what we need to recognize is we've been doing audits for 30 years. Over the last 10 years, we've been doing these partial audits. And when you do partial audits and you discover problems, you should be figuring out how to fix those problems, not saying, now I'm going to go on to the next step. You want to pass the first one before you get on to the harder problem. Um, so what kind of problems do we have? We know the department can't accurately account for intergovernmental trans transactions where it sell, buys and sells things from itself. DOD is has an imp almost impossible problem with that. I talked about SVIS. We know that we have inconsistent data definitions built into our different systems that, that result in mismatches. We know that we're unable to uh, uh, establish what's called a universe of transactions, which is the starting point for an audit. You have, if you're going to have an audit, you need to say, what am I going to audit? Exactly. Well, we have an impossible time even establishing that starting point because our different systems have different time periods and different definitions, so a different set of transactions. So I will say, I want to use my my Army GFEB system as to establish my universe of transactions, and the auditors will come in and say, yeah, but what about these other transactions that are in this other system. Why aren't they in there? And so you have, an, you have a, a difficult problem even establishing that starting point. Um, those kinds of problems are there. We've known they were there. We know we need to fix them. Um, but the thing about most of these problems that we know are there, they're multidimensional. I mean, yeah. they're not – that the one I just discovered, dis described about a universe of transactions, that's not a problem with a single system. It's a problem with multiple systems. The problem of intragovernmental transactions, we don't have a good way of tagging a transaction and picking it up at the other end and matching them. And when it, – it, I said that the Department of Defense is, is something like an economy – a single dollar that's appropriated into the Department of Defense may be spent or transferred a dozen or more times before it leaves the Department of Defense. So if you wanted to try your traditional accounting method of I've set up my different business entities and I'll, each one will come up with this accounting, assist, accounting statement and then I'll add them all up, well, if you just added them all up, you'd come with 12 times the, the amount that you thought you had coming in because you spent the same dollar so many different times. You've got to match those things up and figure out where those internal transactions are so you know what nets out so you yeah. get to the right number. And if one entity is recording it in one way in one system, another entity is recording it another way in another system, and the times don't match, and the, 
you just have a nightmare because your totals are different. And so why do I have 2.7 billion over here and 2.2 billion over here? Well, both systems could be completely accurate using their own definitions, and you could still have that mismatch, and so you're unauditable. So so those are the kinds of problems that we still have today and we know we still have today. How do you fix that, though? Well, that's why I come back to what you want to do and what the purpose of the audit is. You identify the deficiencies, but it's not enough to identify the deficiencies. You have to say, which are the ones that make the most difference for the way I operate my business? And I'm going to focus in on those, and I'm going to fix them. And we've done some of that. And and the, the main area I would give you is logistics, where in the 1990s, our logistics systems, we were unable to track inventory as it progressed from purchase to warehouse to to another warehouse to the battlefield or to the to the depot wherever it's going we didn't we had multiple stacks of inventory at different levels we didn't know what we had we didn't know when it was moving today through most of the system we have what's called uh, asset visibility which means we can see what we have when we have it we we focused on that problem and I won't say it's solved, but it is dramatically better than it was 20 years ago. And so if you focus on a problem like that and you say, I need to know that because I can't have a situation which we had in the 1990s where you have a GA report saying stuff fell off a truck and was left yeah. by the side of the road and nobody knew because you're not tracking it. I can't afford to do that. Well, we've essentially solved that problem. So we need to look at problems like that and say, okay, how does my system work? I need to I need to look at those processes comprehensively and solve that business process. Not think I'm going to solve the whole financial problem, but solve that business process and figure out how to make it work right. And eventually, if you solved enough of those business processes, you'll look at it and you'll say either I can now see how to get to a financial statement from here, and so I will, or I have what I need and it doesn't get me a financial statement, but that doesn't matter because I have what I need. Exactly. And you're operating well. So what were some of the important political lessons uh, that can be learned from the department's efforts to, towards auditability? I think that a starting point I would make is that the problem has never been lack of effort. Okay. And and there, I remember uh, when I was on Capitol Hill about 10 years ago, there was a senator who wanted to, to put into law incentives for getting to a, to a clean audit. So he was going to say that the department couldn't spend money on this or couldn't spend money on that or so-and-so couldn't be confirmed to a position if, if, you, didn't get to, if, if you didn't get to a clean audit, mm-hmm. sort of a, a, a whip hand. That assumes that they're just not trying hard enough and they try harder to get there. That's not what the problem is. Um, we have really good people who have tried really hard. The problem is that it's just too big and complex. So the main issue that I keep coming back to is you have to pick your problems and prioritize them. As a leader in the Department of Defense, whether you're the comptroller or the director of, of CAPE, the, the cost assessment and performance evaluation director, or the undersecretary for personnel and readiness, whatever position you are, you have limited bandwidth. And people below you will, will get the business of the department done. But if you want to drive change, a leader has to step in and drive change. And as a leader with limited bandwidth, you have to figure out where where is it important for me to drive change. You need to be willing to select those issues and stay with them. Because if you don't stay with them, you can put something on course and think it's going to be taken care of. It won't be. It'll go off and disappear into the ether. You've got to stay with it. So um, that selecting problems and selecting a manageable problem that, that, that you can make progress on and make a difference on is the key, I think. You know, are there any additional steps DOD leaders can take to improve the department's financial management processes? 
Well, of course there are. Uh, there, there are any number of, 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 of things the department can do. And, and I would point to the Army I keep giving as an example of, of, of having put in place good core financial systems. The Air Force is the most lacking. The Navy is somewhere in between. But especially the Air Force needs to follow the road plowed by, by the Army and get new systems in place. The, the, the Air Force systems, the, they've, they've had a, a disastrous track record of, of fielding financial systems, and they need to clean that up and, and, and get that done. I think that I've mentioned SVIS a couple of times. I think that filling that out, fixing the definition, and pushing it through the department so it really becomes a common language would be extremely helpful. So um, there are system steps we can take. There are process steps we can take. There are definitional steps we can take. Uh, there are audit steps we can take. I think that there are process aud audits. There's a kind of audit called an SA SSAE-16. I don't know why where auditors come up with these names. But it's something where you look at, at a common process that's used across the enterprise, and you audit it to make sure that it's, that it's, that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Then if you pass your SSAE audit, then everybody can rely on that process. If you don't pass it, if you don't do that, then everybody's got to audit not only their own stuff, but everything that's going through that common process, which makes your problem much harder. So we need to do those kinds of audits. There are any number of steps that can make things better in the department. I'm not convinced that we're ever going to get to a clean audit, and I'm not sure that's the right, even the right goal. Um, but I think the process of having an audit and identifying problems and then addressing those problems is an important one as long as you prioritize and, and identify which fixes are really important and are worth worth the senior leader's time so that you can get them done and improve the way you do business. It kind of goes to my next point, which is, uh, you know, how important is it for DOD to focus on improving financial information that helps you make decisions? So the department has a $700 billion budget. It spends incredible amounts of money. It's taxpayer money. We want to spend it as wisely as possible. So better information to support management decisions is and always will be an important goal. So, uh, Peter, you mentioned David Norquist, uh, who is the current uh, DOD controller. We had the pleasure of having David on the show back when he was with DHS. How much does he think it's going to cost to do an audit this year for DOD? And when did he say we can expect it to be a clean audit? So I believe what he said is about a billion dollars a year is what, what he anticipates spending. He says that um, he does not expect to get to a clean audit in five years. It, we won't get to a clean audit in five years, and we may not get there in ten. Okay. So, um, this is that, a that give, This is a huge investment. Um, I I pushed for. I thought we. Were, I always thought when I was in the department that we were underestimating the cost. And I would say even at, at a billion dollars a year, there are ways in which we're probably underestimating. I'm not sure that includes all the system costs, and. There's an important cost that we ex that we never are able to count, which is you send in auditors and auditors ask questions. We count the, the expense of the auditors, but we don't count the expense of the people who have to answer those questions. So all these all these things where where we're, where we're where we're pulsing the system and say and driving the system to, to to produce this information, we've discounted that we're spending thousands and thousands and thousands of man hours trying to answer questions. And that's just sort of built into the cost of doing business. But it's a real cost. It so I think even at a billion dollars, we're probably significantly undercounting. So what prompted your interest in researching this area? And could you tell us a little bit about how you conducted the research for the uh, Well, I, I worked on this issue both when I was on congressional staff and when I was at the Department of Defense. So in the early 90s, I was on Capitol, the late 80s, early 90s, I was on Capitol Hill when the CFO Act was, was passed. At that time, I was 
an interested observer. I wasn't a real participant. In 1996, when I joined the Senate Armed Services Committee, it became part of my portfolio of responsibilities. I was responsible for defense management issues, and this was a key defense management issue. In fact, um, I played some role in the adoption of legislation. I mentioned legislation that, that codified the, the requirement for business enterprise architecture. Also, I played a, played a role about a little before that in, in, in the statute that said, stop trying to do comprehensive audits until you've determined that your financial statement is actually ready for audit because we were doing all these audits to prove what we already knew and, and it was an incredible expenditure of money. Um, so I played a role in that. Then when I went over to the Department of Defense, I was initially the deputy chief management officer and in that role I had some responsibility for the audit. I co-chaired with Mike McCord, who was then the DOD comptroller, what's called the FIRE Governance Board. FIRE stands for Financial Improvement and Audit Readiness. So the two of us together were responsible for the audit effort in the department. Um, so, so it's something that I've been tracking for a while, um, and I think it's really one of the key building blocks for defense management. Uh, and I'm, I'm currently at the Institute for Defense Analyses. I'm writing a book about defense management reform and what works and what doesn't work and why. So uh, this case study is, is, is a piece, of, is a piece of that book, sure. Yeah. Did you consult outside stakeholders, or is this pretty much your history? So I, and... I did. So you'll see uh, as, as you go through the paper that it has an, 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 a robust a, 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 the, the number of, of footnotes is, is, is so large that it's kind of troubling. Um, so I went back through the history and looked at, looked at the original documents. I, I talked to a number of people who were experts in the field who, who played a role in this at the time. Um, so my memory of it was, was, was sort of a guidepost for, for what to look for, um, but this is all original research. I don't think that, that, that there's – I'm not aware that there's been a comprehensive history of this in this, no, in this it's, way. It's excellent. And, and it seems to me that in, 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 in consistent with the idea that if you want to learn for the future, you have to understand the past, it's important for us to understand this 30 years of history to figure out what we need to do going forward. Well, before we close really quickly, what's your view of the future of uh, financial management and uh, financial management reform in DOD? It's going to continue to be a problem for the foreseeable future. Uh, we're going to continue to spend large amounts of money on it for the foreseeable future, and the challenge is to spend the money wisely and well. Uh, Peter, how could people get a hand, uh, download this report that you wrote? This uh... Uh, I will tell you that, that uh, that's a little bit difficult okay. because the, the report has been published and is publicly available. But you have to request it from Ida. The reason for that is because it will be a piece of a book, which then will be published. So we're we're, we're holding the comp the the copyright by not sure. put but by not putting it out online. Uh, so right. it's not it's not on the website, but it's available. It's available. Uh, what about the book? What what's your t time frame? Uh, I hope in a, within about a year. Uh, the, the basic pieces are are coming together. We definitely look forward to it. Peter, thank you for coming in today. It was a really interesting paper. I think it's very approachable for folks who may get overwhelmed with accounting. Well, you anybody really do a great job. I appreciate anybody who's willing to spend an hour talking about accounting. It shows okay. <laughs> shows a real a real uh, endurance. Thanks so, again. Thanks. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Peter K. Levine of the Institute for Defense Analysis and author of a recent IDA report on auditing the Pentagon. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org.
There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.